0: Welcome to the
2: New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the American South. I'm your host, Brandon Jett. On today's podcast, I'm speaking with Elizabeth Bronwyn Boyd, an interdisciplinary scholar whose experience growing up in Jackson, Mississippi during the Civil Rights Movement and its aftermath inspired her to study, teach, and write about the U.S. South. She holds a BA in Journalism, Broadcasting and Film from Trinity University, an MA in Southern Studies from the University of Mississippi, and a PhD in American Studies from the University of Texas. She has served on the faculties of Vanderbilt University, the University of Mississippi, and the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, and as a postdoctoral fellow at Illinois Program for Research in the Humanities and as a visiting fellow at the Humanities Research Center and at Australian National University. She's also the past president of the Kentucky Tennessee American Studies Association and the Chesapeake American Studies Association. Today, she's here to speak with me about her recent book, Southern Beauty, Race, Ritual and Memory in the Modern South, published by the University of Georgia Press in 2022. The book focuses on three popular gender rituals, sorority rush, beauty pageants, and the Confederate pageant of the Natchez-Mississippi pilgrimage. With its focus on performance, Southern beauty moves beyond representations to show how femininity in motion, stylized and predictable but ephemeral, has succeeded as an enduring emblem where other symbols faltered by failing to draw scrutiny. Continuing to make the moves of region and race, even as many Confederate symbols have been retired, the Southern beauty has persisted, Maintaining power and privilege through consistent performance. Elizabeth Boyd, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks so much.
2: I think a, a good place to start this conversation uh, about the book is, is with the title. This is uh, so, something I learned in grad school very early on. The first book we read, um, I remember the professor told me or asked, asked me some question, like what I thought about the book or something. And, and um, I was kind of fumbling through it. And he's like, the best place to start is always with the title. Like, why did the author pick this thing? Because obviously, we, we all think about uh, that quite a bit. So um, the title, Southern Beauty. Uh, what exactly is the Southern beauty, and where did this idea, or perhaps more appropriately, this this ideal um, emerge?
1: Well, so I think about the Southern beauty as the legacy uh, figure of the Southern lady and the Southern belle um, that I argue have been sort of fused in the contemporary imagination uh, into this uh, Southern beauty. and But she really came from... Um, from antebellum times. And she was, uh, sort of, uh, an ideal, uh, cooked up by white slaveholding men, um, to control their households of, you know, women, uh, and s- children and slaves. Um, the, the Southern lady was, um, you know, over time she was, she was the lady on the pedestal. She was, she was really, um, much more a myth than anything else. Uh, And she was used to justify everything from slavery to Jim Crow to lynching. Um, And so she was, you know, over time, she was this uh, symbol of the region of the white South um, and uh, is both uh, motif and rationale. You know, she's, um, she's the reason for our Southern segregated way of life.
2: Is, is the Southern beauty something that, that was created by the, the kind of patriarchal society that existed or is this something that, that kind of emerged from women themselves? Was, does that question make sense? Like is this something that, that, that's kind of thrust upon them or is this something that they are they are kind of generating um, on their own or is it some combination of, of the two?
1: Well, uh, white Southerners um, were early on um, producing region through these different performances, um, trying to, um, you know, casting these, um, they had aristocratic pretensions. So anything that they could, um, sort of gesture towards being, towards their connection to European nobility, um, you know, was, was all the better. And so they, uh, did things like, um, Twelfth night parties and historical pageants and fencing bouts, you know, in the in the uh, 19th century Um, and May Day pageants were very big Um, and histor historical pageants grew out of out of this trend. And all of these productions featured the, uh, you know, virginal white woman usually uh, a, a, at a tender age, uh, being held up uh, as as this symbol of of their civilization. Um, so there was always uh, a white woman at the center of these productions. And over time, um, these um, grew into more public performances um, as the um, for instance, the the many of these productions um, after the Civil War, were were produced by the United Daughters of the Confederacy uh, at, at uh, Confederate uh, uh, reunions and uh, monument un, um, unveilings. They would always have uh, a, you know, white children, and everyone would be dressed in white, and there would be sort of a queen like person uh, held up as as the symbol of the civilization lost. Uh, so it was very much a lost cause thing. And I look at how when those when those um, Confederate veterans, when the last one finally dies off, um, that that impetus, that that sentiment has to go somewhere. And what happens is, uh, you know, that's around 1920. And in 1921 is when the Miss America pageant starts. And so there's this shift from the ideal woman, um, the Southern beauty, uh, being on a pedestal to moving to pageantry of all sorts, parades, pageants, competitions, historical pageantry, tableau. Um, But so she moves, uh, it was really a pretty easy shift. And my uh, book, uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this, but um, also looks at how that happened and why uh, the Southern states uh, became so prominent and successful within beauty pageant competitions.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I, th- I, th- I, what, what I really like this book and I talked to you about this off, off air, um, is that it's, it's kind of outside of the, the typical kind of historical book that I, I would look at. I study like criminal justice and crime and violence and things like that. Um, and so. I'm always excited to read something like fresh and new that maybe wouldn't have, have come into my bookshelf otherwise. Um, but you know, when, when you look at criminal justice in the Jim Crow South, you, you engage with, with topics like lynchings and, and there you see a, a kind of idealized woman also at the kind of center,
1: uh, who's at uh, risk, of right, those right at possibly risk bestial black men, which was also another big figment. I mean, it was all cooked up by, uh, white patriarchal men, um justifying their control of the entire society
2: yeah and it was just really i don't know if nice is the right word but uh it provided me with a little bit more context as like this wasn't just like an 1890 to 1920 phenomenon this is something that has been perpetuated um you know since (laughs) since the antebellum period up in up into today um, so yeah, uh, yeah, let's let's maybe get into some of these rituals a little bit because that's really the the fulcrum around which the book unfolds. So as I mentioned in the introduction, um, you focus on three popular rituals, and these are things that I'm assuming many listeners will will be familiar with at least maybe one or two of them. Um, and this is uh, sorority rush on universities and college campuses, uh, beauty pageants, both both at the kind of national level, but also at at the very localized level, um, and then you have the Confederate pageant. Um, and, and you look at this in Natchez, Mississippi in particular. And as I suggested, well, maybe most people or some people know about some of these, um, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. Uh, could you maybe just briefly explain what, what each of these three rituals are?
1: Of course. And of, and I did choose the three um, in part because they were they are so familiar to white Southerners. And many young women have participated in one or more of these rituals. So sorority rush, uh, it, which is now called uh, recruitment, but I believe that everyone knows what I'm talking about when I say sorority rush, um, is, is the method uh, by which new members are selected for these exclusive uh, private Greek letter organizations on college campuses. I refer to it as a feminine stratification ritual where, you know, the, the groups with the most, um, the best reputation and the most popularity uh, and, the you know, and the most money and the most everything, the best GPAs, they seek to find uh, new members who will contribute positively to, continu- to continuing that trend. Um, and through them, of course, the the big uh, social magnet um, is is the ability to uh, attract these girls like a magnet. And then uh, through them, the right fraternity men are delivered. So that's Sorority Rush. And then beauty pageants, perhaps more familiarly, um, what exactly are they? They're competitions uh, with very, um, very stringent and, and sort of in their own bubble aesthetic uh, to, to which the co- um, competitors must attempt to, you know, hit the exactly right uh, mark in all of these different uh, segments of competition. And, and they uh, largely grew out of um, harvest pageant harvest festivals and things like that, but, um, became more homogenized and sort of structured, uh, especially through the Miss America pageant, which is the one that I, um, look at the most closely and is considered sort of the gold standard and producer of this, uh, ideal American symbol. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And probably the yeah. one that most listeners are most familiar with would be that 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 big grandiose Miss America pageant, you know, that is on TV and 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 all that stuff. But you you look at them from that level, state level, college level, all the way down to you know small town like Lapel where I'm from, which is really
1: really right. Cool. And all the businesses that are uh, around <laughs> them and grow out of them, right, that, right, that um, generate. And some kind of um, lock-
2: clandestine. Uh, I, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but um, yeah, 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 I I just really love the like. There is a whole business behind these pageants, and you know, getting the right dress made by the right person. And you kind of have to know someone who knows someone who knows someone to go to these small right. towns and you know, Alabama somewhere. And there's this fantastic and and storied uh, dressmaker who who like gets that's right. Who has a runway really cool. in her living room. Right, right. I I, I thought that was really really <laughs> funny and and just really really interesting. Something I wouldn't have really thought about um, previously. So anyway, sorry.
1: Right. No. Um, And so, and then the Confederate pageant of the Natchez Pilgrimage, the Natchez Pilgrimage, of course, is a home and garden tour of an astounding collection of antebellum homes in Natchez, Mississippi. And for 82 years, the garden clubs of Natchez um, put on a tourist production that was hosted during the weeks of pilgrimage. Called the Confederate Pageant, uh, and it was a series of his of um, tableau with music uh, and participation by uh, hundreds of volunteers every year um, from the local community. Everyone from age three on up um, performing these different uh, roles, and it was very much a Moonlight and Magnolias version of. Um, of Natchez, and by extension, Southern history, um, in, in which there's no depiction of enslavement whatsoever. And uh, this, this production uh, actually is a production on two levels, one for the tourist audience, and I argue uh, the, the other audience is, is each other. Uh, because a lot of status accrues from from performing certain roles in this pageant uh, with with the mothers of the garden Club um, having their dedicated work over the years rewarded in the end by having their uh, children um, selected to be in the court or or, Highest of all, queen of the Natchez pilgrimage. Yeah, yeah. So I, that, I, does that give you an idea of what that is? Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I think the Natchez pilgrimage would probably be the the most unfamiliar one um, to, right. to to most listeners. So but if you've a, ever been, this is a production to...
1: that is uh, auxiliary to the actual yeah. tour of homes.
2: Yeah, and I mean, if you've ever been to Natchez, you could probably env- envision kind of what this looks like. Um, just, be- I, I, I was taken to Natchez by my grandparents uh, that lived in New Orleans when I was really young, and even then, I, I, you know, I, was, I think it was in like fifth grade or something, and we didn't see the pageant or anything, but it's just that tour of homes. And I remember even like a fifth grade kid who was brought up in like the the South, um, you know, in the early '90s. I just remember thinking. What about the slaves, right? And and I just remember very distinctly one of the tour guides, you know, she was going on and on about the mantle in this in this house and you know this plantation home and it, and it was a gorgeous mantle, uh, but you know that's that's when I said it. I was like, yeah, like what about the enslaved people? And I just remember her response was, uh, they got new clothes at Christmas and were treated very well, you know. And then like next, um, you know, like that's that's where we're we're going. And I think when 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 I was reading that portion of the book, I I, I don't know much about that pageant, but I was just kind of like, yeah, this 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 seems to kind of fit in with what I, I perceive and and remember, uh, Natchez to be. Um, I'll say this. I, I, uh, liked learning a little bit more about sorority rush. Um, I, I went to a, a college as an undergrad that didn't have a very robust Greek system. Um, and so I knew a couple of people who were in fraternities and sororities, but, but it wasn't quite this, this, this grandiose production that you described. Um, but it wasn't until I got to my PhD program, um, that was a big, you know, flagship state institution in the South uh, that I was really exposed to what Rush looked like. Um, you know, I obviously wasn't participating in it, but, you know, some students were involved in it. And you could just kind of see it on campus. And I was like, what in the world? I mean, it is it is an institution kind of within this institution. Um, but it was something that was was a little foreign to me. I didn't really know all that went into it. Um, and so I, I really really appreciated that that kind of level of scrutiny and, and kind of an insider look into what goes on um, in, in yeah. So in each rush. of
1: each chapter that deals with these uh, rituals, I go behind the scenes and also um, base my analysis in part on a series of taped interviews that mm-hmm. I did.
2: So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, you you described your research approach as, um, and I love this, necessarily eclectic, um, and you said it was designed to illuminate wide-ranging but related questions from multiple vantage points. Um, so what what was this research process like for you, and what kind of sources did you rely on?
1: Well, you know, let me back up just a second, Brandon, because I have to tell you how I how I got interested in researching this in the first place. I had been living in Texas. I grew, I did grow up in Mississippi, as, as your introduction noted, uh, but I had been away for a few years. And I came back to work on my Master's in Southern Studies at the University of Mississippi. And I was just sort of hit by this wall of competitive femininity. It was everywhere. And I kept thinking, whoa, I mean, I had grown up with this, but Uh, It was really something to see. And I saw saw so much of it being there at sort of uh, ground zero of Southern beauty culture uh, at the University of Mississippi. And so uh, the other thing that was going on was that uh, um, scholars were starting to investigate um, uh, the idea of whiteness and especially of Southern identity as coded as white. And I kept thinking, how could that be? That's so absurd on its face. Um, the South has always been at least biracial or even multiracial, and we have always lived in close proximity together. Um, and so I, I started thinking well, if Southern identity is coded white, what does femininity have to do with it? What are maybe these rituals? Because I started asking myself, what's going on here? As you said, it's so bizarre when you see some of these things going on on campus. I thought there must be something else more significant going on than just picking new members you know in that case or in a beauty pageant why are people so invested in being in a beauty pageant and why is their whole town rallying around them Uh, right and the the Natchez interest uh, came a bit later uh, but debutante uh, balls uh, which the confederate pageant that's a key element I should have mentioned functions as something as a debutante ball uh, for that town um, yeah, uh, I, I thought there must be something, why is it so intense? and what do these, what does gender performance have to do with it? Because I just had a suspicion that it was was uh, uh, they were related. And, and so I really didn't uh, at first know what it was that I was interested in finding out. And I, and I decided I wanted to do um, I wanted to do some taped interviews. Uh, with participants in these rituals to find out their perspective. I mean, I was very aware that and the the rest of the method is more uh, ethnographic observation, uh, as well as, of course, lots of secondary uh, research. Um, But I was very aware that I could have come up with one analysis based on just watching these performances. But that would not really tell me what their, these participants' investment was, what was their motivation, what did they say the competition was about? And that's one of the questions I asked them. You know, why is it so precise? Why is it so high stakes? What's going on here? And so I would not have been able to write the book that I did without actually going behind the scenes and also interviewing these girls. Yeah.
2: So uh, just, just to kind of get in your, your, your headspace a little bit, I remember when I was... Um at the undergrad institution, you know, there were a couple of people who who were rushing and and I remember I asked one of my not not good friends from high school, but you know, we knew each other and we went to the same college after that. And it was like the first week uh, of rush or something like that. And I, I remember she was outside of the dorms. And I walked up and I was like, Hey, um, you know, what's what's going on? And She's like, kind of can't
1: talk suggesting to suggesting
2: to me that she couldn't talk to me. Uh, and I was like, Oh, Oh, I'm I'm so sorry, right? And then like a week later she was like, "Hey, sorry, but you know the rules." of Rush are that we can't, we can't speak to, um, I don't know if it's it's any guy or like what the rule was, but they didn't want anybody's decision to be tainted um, by like outside influence. And then there were all these weird things like you picked your top three or four, and then the sororities picked their, like if you match your top with their top, then it works. And, and, and if it didn't, then like you're out. And I was like, oh my gosh, it seems so cutthroat. Um, and it didn't really make much sense to me. Um, like so I wonder, day. yeah, mm-hmm. a little bit. And so I wonder when, when, lot, when you had that, this idea and you think, okay, this this is interesting. Did did you just walk up to sorority rushes and say, hey, what's going on here?
1: Well, you know that's that's the thing. You don't just drop by a sorority rush party. You have to have permission. And the same thing, actually, with all of the things that I um, that I studied uh, with the Natchez Pilgrimage, especially being. Um, closely held, if you will, um, and so there, I did have to have permission in advance, and um, I know that I benefited from being a uh, white Southerner. I was a Mississippian, I was a local girl, and um, I did, I probably did research a that that they probably would not let me do now. <laughs> <laughs> like actually going to that? these rush parties because because oh, yeah <laughs> you know uh rush and i did it at the university of mississippi and the university of alabama okay uh spoiler alert and so <laughs> you know bama rush has become this phenom uh with tiktok um which which happened after i did the research for my book but i have some uh, thoughts about that and um yeah, I had to have per- permission of Greek life, and um, and then permission uh, from the young women themselves. But I have to say that, and I and I went to some chapter meetings and said uh, because I had a friend in the history department who said, well, you know, Beth, what pe- what students understand is a sign-up sheet, so you <laughs> sign them up. <laughs> so I went to the chapter Did it work? meeting. <laughs> yes, it worked, <laughs> That's and good not to only know. did it not only did it work, but um, you know, people referred their friends, and it was a snowball oh. effect. And so um, they weren't suspicious
2: I, at all. Like, okay, what, what, why do you want to know about these things? Or they were just well, pretty you know, welcome,
1: all of all of my interviews. Uh, people had the choice to be anonymous in publication, and some of them did, did choose that. And uh, of course, I did uh, releases informed consent. Uh, based on um, typical folklore um, paperwork. And, um, you know, they were there of their own volition. They wanted to talk to me. And um, I know at the University of Alabama, some of the administrators I I got wind of that they weren't too thrilled with the girls coming and talking to me, that it was okay if I came and watched the, the parties but um, <laughs> That seems like it would be but, the worst part. Yeah, but uh, they came anyway, and they and I set up at a, uh, archives uh, on both campuses uh, at the at the University of Mississippi. Uh, the Blues Archives let me have free reign of ha- or having a room, and it was right across the street from Sorority Row, so that was awesome. And um, so I had I had no problem getting people to tell me their um personal perspective
2: yeah yeah well, I thought that was really fascinating because I, I was just struck by that one story where like when like my first attempt to try to understand Rush and it was like, no, we're not allowed to talk. And I was just 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 really impressed with the amount of information that you were able uh, to gather from from these participants in something um, that that is is kind of secretive, right? Like that's that's part of the appeal to it is, you know, those who know, uh, you know, the appropriate dress and how you're supposed to comport yourself um, tend to do better in in these Rush activities and in these pageants and, and you know. Uh, in terms of placement and the the um, Confederate pageant that you talked about. So I, I just found that really fascinating that it is supposed to be kind of guarded, but yet um, you right. were able there's to a get pu- such each, access. Each
1: of, the, each of these rituals, there's a public and a private side. And it's kind of funny to me because sorority rush makes a big deal about certain things being private, you know, their ritual, quote unquote. Uh, and yet lots of people who, join a different club, go through the houses. They have to, to go through the process. So many of them have seen it, but there are things that you can only see from being in the house. And I have to say that was super interesting to watch the rushing going on and to go in the one room and it'd be all the legacies in that room and how they were being rushed differently from the uh, girls in a different room and how uh, just different things that were, the, the mechanics of actually conducting rush because th- they have to choose choose each other uh in reality this the sororities have the upper hand um unless you're like the number one it girl on campus that everyone wants um and, and they have to do it extremely efficiently because the parties are pretty short they there are hundreds of r- girls going through this, series of three or four parties um, in the space of a week. So it, by necessity, has to be pretty superficial. But they also, uh, as my book details, there's a lot of advanced planning and research and uh, finding out about who's going to be coming through the door before Russia even starts.
2: And that seemed to be a pretty consistent theme throughout the the three rituals is, you know, you've got, you've got the, the public facing side of it, right. Where, you know, right. so if you take like the beauty pageants, for instance, right. Okay. Well, you've got some, some, some young ladies who are interested in this, and then they go, you know, work on a talent and then they, they get a dress and, you know, then they go up on stage. I, I've never seen one, but then, you know, I'm, I'm like assuming this is what happens. Right. And then the crowd votes and they pick, and then there's a winner and everybody's happy. but it's, it's it's the behind the, the scenes stuff.
1: Vote. The crowd doesn't vote. The yeah, judges
2: vote. Yeah. Like select judges. Right. And it's like, who, you know, yeah. um, you know, who sponsored you, what businesses have, have supported you, who, who made your dress, what your family connections, like, it's just all this behind the scenes aspect of it. Um, that, that, right, that I you found wouldn't pretty consistent in all of
1: that. That's yeah. exactly right. And, and in the quote unquote strong states of beauty, Pageant competition <laughs> with Mississippi being number one, right? Uh, because of its track record, um, there there's just uh, more competition and uh, more tendency on the part of the pageant officials to make the contestants re- uh, compete um, repeatedly for several years before they will advance them to the next level of competition. So they're not going to choose Miss Mississippi uh, you know, like this Cinderella narrative that she can just show up with her borrowed gown and et cetera. And when, um, it's pretty much a given that it's going to be somebody who is a seasoned pageant contender and, and probably a, a, seasoned contender in that pageant.
2: Yeah. Like these, these, these are all really difficult things to break into. I have a daughter. Um, and you know, as I was reading that, I was like, if, I don't know anything about Rush or beauty pageants, right? And if she said, I'm interested in this, like my idea would kind of be that Cinderella story, right? She's like, okay, well, we'll go find a, a dress, I guess. And then we'll show up to the thing. And he's like, that, that is not going to be the most effective route.
1: Right. Um, then if you get to a really... competitive campus, like these SEC schools that I yeah. um, depict, uh, if you did that, you would then find yourself competing with girls that have been prepping and preparing for Rush since... The beginning of high school,
2: right? Because right.
1: there's such a, 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 a um, what's the word I'm looking for um, a pipeline from certain schools. There are uh, certain schools and certain towns that are favored over others, and um, girls are protecting their reputations, in particular, in advance in case uh, the sorority girls at where where they want to pledge uh, hear about something. Um,
0: at sax.com dot com
2: yeah um, so th- the book is is about more than just, hey, let's let's talk about this, this mm-hmm. ritual here. And isn't this kind of uh, an, an interesting insight into these things you maybe don't know too much about? But you say there's actually something much more going on here. Um, and you argue that these young women, uh, be it the sorority rushes uh, or the pageant contestants or the people who are taking part in, in the um, Natchez Confederate pageant, um, that, that they've been charged with the task of what you call constructing region and linking this duty uh, to annual gender rituals, crucial t- crucial to social success. Uh, and so I was hoping you could maybe uh, delve in a little bit into this idea of, of these rituals in some way, shape or form constructing region, right? Like, what does that mean and how yeah. do these rituals accomplish that?
1: Well, you know, all regions are constructed, um, you know, and, and you do it by... Uh, trafficking in indifference, in, difference, in, in con- you know, sort of convincing ourselves over and over that there really is something distinctive about the South uh, in this case. And it can come from um, uh, traditions and customs and um, retail items. and But it's also to do with uh, these performances um, that every year, like clockwork, um, Allow these the this, this, the Southern beauty to serve as this really central memory mechanism for uh, for for nostalgic white Southerners who want to see themselves as connected to um, to an earlier South, and often that is a South uh, a segregated South in which they had privilege and um, yeah, so uh, the Southern Beauty is a is this central and really effective um, performer. She she's she's a symbol, um, but but her symbol is is made relevant by repeat performance. So you you there are things that have to be these annual traditions, um, and often they have to do with pageantry. I, I mentioned some of the early ones. Um, you know the the early sort of European um, aristocratic um, assertions of of May Days and and fencing bouts and historical pageants, but in in the mid 20th century South on college campuses when you have um, massive resistance to uh, desegregation and to racial equality, the Southern Beauty is like that's her heyday. She is held up as this symbol of the white South, Um, and and I I talk about her as um, basically being a form of passive resistance to uh, changing the South's racial ways. Um, That is the the, the quiet, silent, lovely counterpart to that ugly, uh, violent, to use your word, um, you know, masculine, uh, massive resistance. And so um, she is continually held up in these productions. And if you look at the mid 20th century South uh, on college campuses in particular, there's a beauty pageant practically every week. And I talk about some of those in, in, in the book. Um, But there are also other productions. Um, For instance, uh, when during football season, there would be um, of course, Homecoming queens and other types of queens, um, but part and parcel of this was was demonstrating the difference between this beautiful white white symbol of region and the blackness that she is not. Right. So there's lots of blackface in campus productions, uh, both in performative, um, you know, fraternity and sorority parties, even in sorority rush. So uh, people that think about blackface being something that dudes did uh, or do, no. There are young uh, women in blackface at sorority parties and it's part of showing, you know, how hilarious, right? Um, uh, Showing the stark difference of their uh, race and class privilege. Uh, And there's no better shorthand way to do it than blackface. And it's this incredibly pervasive at college campuses, um, not strictly in the South, but certainly in the South.
2: Okay, so help me make this connection here, because like in in my mind, um, I, I I have some friends and they uh, bought me uh, a man like a Southern manners guide or something that they found at some some like antique shop or something from like you know like the nineteenth century at some point, right? And we're kind of reading through it, and sometimes I bring it to class and we like joke about you know these are the expected behaviors. Right. And, and, and I think in many ways they are, they are kind of constructing or reinforcing this, this Southern beauty ideal. So help me make this connection between, you know, okay, you've, you've got this kind of paternalistic pressure in the 19th century that is kind of, um, concocting this image based off of you know old old european standards and the southern standards at the time designed to like perpetuate patriarchy and and like racial privilege right how does that connect to you know some small town you know the strawberry harvest festival queen like 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 how how are those two things connected and how is how is the strawberry queen pageant and I don't know if that exists so so please don't get upset strawberry queen pageant if you're out there um but you know like what is the connection between those two and how does this perpetuate that ideal that was crafted you know a century and a half ago
1: well so the strawberry queen of which there are many <laughs> and i'm sure
2: they're all wonderful
1: <laughs> right um you know the, the, that's a good example because these harvest Festival Queens—they um, grew uh, grew out of um, the need for, uh, for instance, I don't know about strawberries, but um, to use cotton or tobacco as a as a larger crop example—to to sort of literally draw interest um, in people to To come and and purchase at these festivals and fairs the excess yields, all right, and so so these harvest queens and they were very uh, saucy and a little racy looking. Some of their their uh, posters and calendars that they were on uh, were quite provocative. You know, they would be uh, caressing the crops or um, <laughs> you know, got... Uh, this tobacco some, you leaf. Some people never see it now, right? Um, <laughs> But of course, what what's not depicted, and the and the queens are all white, uh, is is the means of production. There's no mention of the African American and white tenant farmers who actually produce the crop. So there's this again, this sort of silencing and and um, you know, not looking at the entire picture here, but still holding up this. Uh, white woman as an ideal. Now, you also asked about, and I, I'm not sure I totally addressed this, but about ha- why uh, um, these coming-of-age rituals are important to producing region. And, and that has to do with it as well, because um, coming-of-age rituals, you know, th- they're all these, within a certain uh, period of your lifespan, It's just a few, it's a narrow window. And with these being sort of entry points for um, social success and status, um, the fact that they happen every year, like clockwork, means that they continually are, are, they reproduce the system uh, because every year there's a new uh, group of girls who's mother or whomever wants them to participate in this. And they've been expecting to do this for some people going through sorority rush. They've been expecting to do this their entire life. Right. Uh, Even the beauty pageant Queens have a, have a window from about, um, I'm thinking about um, this at the state level. Uh, Of course there are many junior kids pageants, but those are, you know, they age out at I think age 23, maybe. Um, so so it is a, a, a coming-of-age um, experience, um, and with these uh, methods of accruing and uh, status um, and privilege attached to them.
2: Absolutely. So... You you kind of teased this a little bit, but maybe we could we could engage with it a little bit more fully. Um, you know, this is this is a book about the South, so race is, is kind of at the center of all of it, and, and your subtitle certainly suggests that. So, um, how does race fit into these regional constructions um, that are being perpetuated? You know, year after year after year after year. Um, you kind of mentioned, you know, like the the queens for a very long time are 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 always white, um, but but. Let's take like the Natchez pilgrimage um, or the Confederate pilgrimage, for example. Like, What, what, what is it um, that is going on in that pageant, and how does it, it grapple with the, the issue of race, or does it grapple with the issue of race at all?
1: <laughs> well, uh, the story that Natchez wants to tell about its past remains unresolved. Uh, as I said, for 82 years, they performed a pretty consistent script that um, that did not discuss enslavement at all. Uh, the early years of the pageant actually had some African-American citizens on stage, but they were doing pretty demeaning things like picking cotton and, um, you know, eating watermelon and et cetera. And when the 60s rolled around... Um, they, you know, pretty much collectively withdrew from participating in that sort of role. Uh, African
2: American participants.
1: Yes. Yeah. You know, understandably, and um, but over the years, there's the, the, the production uh, changed somewhat with with each uh, vignette, with some vignettes being taken out and others being put in. But the general uh, story was one of. Uh, you know, a, a happy benevolent, benevolent um, antebellum South, um, when, uh, even in more recent years when they had a few African American uh, participants, for instance, singing um, on stage, it didn't really change the cultural logic of the production. Now, a couple a few years ago, uh, there was a radical break. Uh, there was a young woman who was asked to be queen and she was a history major at Millsaps college. And, uh, she said, uh, it was Madeline Isles, uh, and she, her father's a, a novelist. And she said, daddy, I, unless you rewrite the script, I am not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> and so he did. And they had quite a different script there for a couple of years where, um, enslavement was depicted. Uh, it was, uh, discussed. And at the end, um, it's amazing that this is different, but, uh, you know, it was recognized that the South had lost <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: and, um, and it was, it was quite different. Yeah. And then, uh, a subsequent production, um, kept some of those changes but it was a little bit different but also in a more progressive vein. And then ultimately one of the clubs withdrew uh citing artistic differences and uh the remaining club has gone back to producing a pageant that's more like the original than uh these more recent um renditions. I have not seen the most recent pageant uh because my you know my book ends at a certain point but um, to me, it, it's it's nice to see uh, Natchez grappling with its past. Uh, what happened was for so many years and decades when other uh, communities around the country were re- redrafting or doing away with some of these sort of um, nostalgic productions, um, they kept on and really didn't change it for a long time. They didn't see anything wrong with it. And then even after they realized that there was, they were sort of painting themselves into a uh, representational corner, uh, they couldn't figure out how to change it. And the big sticking point was that uh, to change it, they would be doing away with this Confederate court scene at the end, which served as the debutante function for the queen and her court. So it became this issue of, um, of, Presentation, as in debutante presentation, and so you know it's a a question again of of linking uh, linking uh, uh, a particular locale's story with this um, demonstration of class privilege and and reproducing the Natchez social structure that unfortunately were linked, and it was they couldn't figure out a way to, to, uh, unhook them. Yeah. So,
2: I mean, if we're thinking about this, like, okay, maybe in the 1960s or something, right. You've got like segregated, um, schools and colleges and, and, but like surely, right. Like over time, uh, colleges are integrating, um, sororities, uh, I'm, I'm assuming are, are integrating these beauty pageants. Um, at At the local level, at state and national level, um, they're not just all white contestants anymore. So, so in terms of like presentation, how does it continue to perpetuate this, this kind of idealized notion uh, of Southern beauty, but also this kind of racialized understanding of, of both region um, and, and kind of feminine ideals um despite some of the like more progressive changes we've we've you know undergone in this country in the last you know 50 60 years in terms of like integrating um both black and white people into these formerly segregated um institutions
1: well so the change that has come has been with all deliberate speed and i do mean deliberate i mean sororities uh did not desegregate at the university of Alabama until I believe it was 2013. Mm-hmm. So that's shocking. That's only 10 years ago. Yeah. And so, and this is a pattern. I mean, I mentioned Natchez cause it's a uh, sort of a uh, concentrated uh, case study, if you will, but they're not the only ones. This is a, a question that goes on at, uh, Uh, questions about tourist productions across the South. Um, And sororities have now nominally desegregated. Um, Beauty pageants probably were ahead of either the other two. Um, But as I argue in the book, the sort of cultural logic and, and parameters of the beauty pageant Still manage to produce a lot of conformity, no matter what your complexion is, and uh, from the contestants, so that you may have this this young African American contestant who's outbells the other young women, right? Um, and so so the so it's not as much. There's a little bit of a color correction uh, with a few a. Few Few, in some cases, token uh, members of of these productions, but there has not been anything. For instance, I don't think that that uh, mainline sororities will ever uh, approximate the demographics of their states. For yeah. example,
2: yeah. And right? even if you think through, like you know, you have to have that background knowledge. And if these institutions have been segregated until ten years ago, um, if you are uh, a young black woman and you are trying to rush, you don't have that. That institutional knowledge or those backgrounds or those connections that many of your white counterparts
1: would, You don't right? have so those that, recommendation letters and you don't right. have the legacy status. Right,
2: right. right. And so that's helpful that, for
1: you to have the legacy status.
2: Right. That's so exactly I, right. I found that quite interesting. You know, when when we have conversations about policing, right, it's kind of similar in a lot of ways where um, the introduction of Black police officers was, was supposed to be something that like radically changed policing in a way that was more equitable. Um, and in some ways, you know, policing has obviously changed and, and improved, but in other ways, um, we find that, that police officers, regardless of their ethnic or racial background, kind of adopt the culture of police, right. And don't necessarily radically adjust it, but more kind of, um, conform to the preexisting culture that, that exists there. And I think, um, I saw a connection between what you were arguing in your book and, and kind of what we talk about when we think about policing.
1: Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's a tipping point beyond which um, these institutions will not diversify because that's not the point of exclusion, right? If you're trying to be, um, to, you know, up your reputation on campus or whatever through joining a particular club or becoming a certain beauty pageant or being queen of the pilgrimage, um you're not going to get there um well y- y- you're you're inherently tr- trying playing by the rules of an exclusionary system
2: yeah. yeah yeah so so i'm curious you know we've had this this reckoning of sorts over the last you know 5 5 years um, especially concerning some of these Confederate monuments and you know um, parks and schools and streets named after Confederate general generals and and whatnot and and you know we've we've seen monuments come down and schools be renamed, um, but it seems like these these rituals that you bring up uh, have incredible staying power. And so, what do you think it is about about these rituals, Rush, um, the pageants that that have kind of I mean people scrutinize them for sure and some people criticize them but but not to the point that you know people are are you know doing away with them completely um, so what do you think it is about about these rituals that that, that you identified uh, that that allows them to kind of continue to perpetuate this kind of southern beauty ideal um, and kind of reaffirm this notion of you know uh, a white south um in ways that that other things that did a similar um, thing have, have have kind of been pushed aside. What is it with this steam yeah.
1: power? Well, think about what is a symbol. A symbol, ha- uh, you know, promotes um, all sorts of ideas and emotions and uh, connotations to adhere uh, to it and to. Be this shorthand for uh, meaning, right? And the Southern beauty has now outlasted the Confederate flag (laughs) and the monuments. (laughs) And I think, you know, but she, uh, I think she is this, has been this incredibly effective, powerful. Um, memory mechanism, mechanism, and uh, source of nostalgia. This sort of uh, focal point for people wanting to sort of re- see themselves as uh, as a, in continuity with an earlier, uh, more pleasant, more privileged uh, space in the white South. So it's it's a it's a quite um, nostalgia argument. But I think that she's uh, been able to last as long as she has because uh, she's sort of a stealth operator, uh, which is funny because she's so out there and in public and in your face and so visual. But it's people uh, wanting to consume her. You know, they're so um, sentimental about this figure. Um, And she's escaped notice. Because she's also not been discussed. There's two things here, right? First of all, she's a woman. And how important could that possibly be? Right? How could, you know, this this is just frivolity and leisure activities and campus rituals. And we've always done it this way. And Brandon, it's tradition. So, and you know what that means. Well, so... There's been a lot of silence about her cultural work. She has been highly successful at at suggesting and gesturing as you know this um, this figure of continuity with an earlier South um, because uh, the audience is complicit. They want you know they give her so much social uh, reinforcement and recognition and um, all the status um, goodies that, that she wants um, for performing this rendition of white Southern womanhood. So she gets a lot out of it. Um, but, but it's, it's also this, this silence that surrounds her. Yeah. And right? You know,
2: I was kind of thinking too, it's, it's so familiar, right? Like, um, you've seen the beauty pageants forever. Uh, you, you know, people who are in sororities and, and, and I think sometimes it's that like, well, I know, I know Elizabeth and she was in a sorority and she's a nice person. Surely they're not, you know, she's not perpetuating some racialized fictitious notion of the South. She's just a nice person. And she wanted to join this like social group or, um, you know, be in this pageant. That's really great. And she does a lot of community service. Um, so I, I could like totally see how the familiarity allows the, the ideal of the Southern beauty to kind of, uh, fend off some of those. Criticisms. That's,
1: well, that's the, that's just it. Uh, we, as a culture have normalized this and to the fact that we don't think it's odd when someone shows up in class in a hoop skirt. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, on its face, that's kind of bizarre. Um, uh, but, but yes, and, and, and I talk about, um, you know, the young women going through Rush, um, being uh, able to sort of turn on a dime and, and pull this Southern lady performance out of their back pocket when they need it. Uh, this is not to say that they fashion themselves like this day in and day out. That's not what's important. The imp- what's important is, is being able to do it when it matters. And, uh, yeah, so, um, but, but it has totally been normalized and, um, and so she carries on.
2: She carries on. Um, well, I, I, I always like to ask, um, authors, uh, this last question. So this will be the one that, that sends us off here. Um, after someone closes this book, they've, they've read it from cover to cover, they close it. Uh, what do you hope they take away from all of this?
1: Well, I hope they problematize these productions, right? Especially the young white Southern women who have the power to change them by either continuing to go along to get along uh, and participate, or by realizing and um, uh, refusing to to participate. Um, you know, um, I hope that, in essence, young white Southern women will see and recognize the goldfish bowl. Um, you know, that, that if this is the water in which they swim, that has become so normalized that they now recognize the, um, real work that these productions do, uh, right up until this day. Um, you know, uh, ostensibly, um, They receive a lot of privilege, race and class privilege, but it's at the expense of gender deference. And, you know, is that a privilege or is that a trap? Um, So, you know, yes, there are rewards, but what kind of rewards are they and what are the costs for all of us? So, yeah, that's what I would hope. I think
2: that's really great, too, because I think, you know, for for so long, the issue of Confederate monuments, just it was just kind of that right there. We would go to New Orleans all the time and well, it's Lee Circle. There's there's a statue of Robert E. Lee. It's just kind of what it is. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't think it was until there was was like a real um, kind of emphasis on no, like this is what the Confederacy was. This is why this monument was put up when it was put up. And this is the kind of thing that it reinforces. Um, that we saw this kind of slow movement, but eventually it picked up enough steam that people, you know, like, yeah, I think we have to have to do away with this because it, it, even though it's been normalized and maybe we don't necessarily think about it all the time, it is, it is reinforcing this notion It has been for decades. Um, and so normalized maybe,
1: by white people,
0: right? Yeah, that's right.
1: right. And of course, I talk about that uh, in the book uh, how um, the murders in. Charleston at Emanuel A.M.E. Church um, really caused a reckoning and a, a moment when white Southerners finally had to look at themselves in the mirror and recognize what the Civil War had really been about. And for, as historians, that's sort of flabbergasting. <laughs> but you know, there was this again this silence for so many decades. Um, where people just didn't want to think about it um, because they didn't want to feel bad. And and now we see that happening with school curricula.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, right. Among oh, other I'm in things. Florida.
2: We know all about it. <laughs> I know.
1: And, and with things like, like the uh, pageant at Natchez, right. Yeah. Uh, because it calls into question what you had always understood about your family and local history. Uh, if that's how you learned it, if it, if you learned your understanding of the past from these sort of family tales and local myths, then having to recognize, um, something radically different, uh, is, it can be extremely uh, painful. Yeah. 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 So,
2: well, I think it's, it's, connected. it's an excellent way, uh, this book, an excellent way to, to further that conversation and hopefully, um, Be part of this eventual reckoning where people can, can at least those who are participants in these things recognize that, you know, the, 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 the images and the rituals and, and the consistency and the timing, uh, can in fact have really negative consequences, both for participants and, and the rest of us, uh, Writ large so I think it's a fantastic book um, again it, it, it just engages with stuff that that are both familiar but 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 somewhat foreign um, in a way that is revealing um, but also just takes that that extra step and and kind of forces us to grapple with this like yeah but what's really behind all of this and how is it um, impacting society you know in the 1950s 60s, 70s uh, but even right up to this very day so um, congratulations on such a fantastic work um, and Thank and and Yeah, and just to remind our listeners, uh, the book is Southern Beauty, Race, Ritual, and Memory in the Modern South, and it is published by the University of Georgia Press. Um, Elizabeth Boyd, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure.
1: It was my pleasure. Thank you.
2: And thank you for listening to new books in the American South.